Yo, what up, what up, what up? This is the Lazy Philosophers Podcast, and today I got with us Gooby Diaz, or Eric Diaz. Thank, how, thank you for being with us today. Good, glad to be here. Yeah, man. Do you want to plug your Twitter at the beginning, just in case the people love you and then don't make it to the end? <laughs> yeah, uh, my Twitter is at Disco Diaz. All right, Disco Diaz. All right, man. And uh, Goob, uh, I, I call you Gooby. Is it cool if I call you Gooby on the yeah. thing? Oh, okay. Um, so, when... Um, you you make movies for school, right? Mm-hmm. And you write for the uh, what's the name of the paper? I currently write for the Odyssey. Yeah, and I also started writing for a site called Flock You next week. Flock You, yeah, yeah. congrats, man. <laughs> but um, I want to get you on here because um, I want to talk about storytelling and narratives. And we were just talking about how people take BuzzFeed na- uh, quizzes. Uh, Eric was making this point where he was like, "Hey, uh, um, people are taking these quizzes." And that they're letting, they're defining themselves by this. But I think what these quizzes are actually giving people is a narrative on where they're important. And we love to be told about ourselves because we actually don't know who we are. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like whenever we're the, the first person I look for when I see a picture of a group of people that I'm in. I look for me because yeah. I don't know what I look like. And I, I, I don't, you know, even though I experience myself all the time, I don't even know who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think we look for this like overarching narrative or somebody with authority to tell us this is who you are. <laughs> Even if it is a BuzzFeed quiz that was thrown together in 10 minutes. Yeah, it's definitely hard to reflect for someone else, which is kind of why I feel like whenever we watch a movie or take a picture with like a group of people, we always are looking at ourselves. Just because it almost be, it's just not your place to reflect for someone else because you never want to kind of project your own ideals onto someone else. And I think that's why advice in general doesn't really work because you can't, you can never really be in someone else's shoes. So for you to like try to act like you can and give them like proper advice is just doesn't quite make sense. So I'm gonna disagree with you on. The, I I think I think there's a space for advice, but I think the thing is is that that person number one needs to think that number one needs to think that your advice is valuable enough to implement. Mm-hmm. And I, the the thing is, I think everyone's path is different and unique, but I also think we're overwhelmingly the same, mm-hmm. which. It's it's like a weird dichotomy. Like all our problems are nuanced than they're our own. Yet many people have had the same problems. And when it comes down to it, there's like a certain mode of approach. Or like I think a lot of times what advice is is a form of technology for your brain to perceive the world in a different way. And it's a better way of organizing information. Let's say like there's an amazing story you have, or like oh I think a good way of looking at it is like editing. You know you do a lot of editing mm-hmm. with uh when you're putting together a movie and things like that and the cinematography that can really make for a better effect or even take average footage and make it transcendent. And I think that's what advice is. It's something that can take the footage that you have in life and show you how to cut it up in a way that is probably more beneficial or fits to the aesthetic that you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I think my general problem with advice is I always viewed myself as a green light. If someone tells me they want to do something, I don't really think about the pros and cons. I, my general advice is always just there's only one way to find out. If you want to do something, I think you should just do it and see where it takes you. Well, so I, I actually do. So Clay and I were talking. Uh, it might have been Clay, uh, which is a, a mutual friend of ours. His Twitter is that boy wonder, I think. A blonde wonder. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we, we were talking about how I have these really firm convictions about the world. And that... I whenever I say something it is not it is not like uh maybe it's this is how it's done forever and then I'll do it and then realize yeah that's probably not how it's done but this is the truth and I do 
I so I think that there's a lot of people who try to find truth before action, and I find truth in reflection. Mm. And um, the other person who looks carefully makes fewer mistakes, but I think they make less progress. Um, me, I make greater progress, but there are more mistakes, and so there's more questioning periods. The time is probably more of a high risk portfolio. Mm. But I think it's important if you're stuck in a point in your life to basically just take action, even if you don't know what you're doing. And I think it's very hard to do that because you don't have a narrative telling you that that's okay to do. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I actually, one of the more cliche advices, I'm actually working on an article now uh, called 10 popular like advice cliches and what they should actually be. And one of them is eyes on the prize. But that way of thinking is false. It should actually be eyes on the road. Because if you're only thinking about the destination, then there's so much distance but if you keep your eyes on like the work ahead then you'll it'll work in increments it's like the whole malcolm gladwell thing yeah the uh, malcolm gladwell 10,000 hours mm-hmm. and stuff i to, to me i'm uh, there's a there's a taoist parable where uh this young uh, man asked this buddha he's like if i meditate all the time every day and invest all my time in meditation how long will it take for me to become um enlightened and he says 5 years he says, what if I, if I spent every waking moment and everything I do is associated, he said 10 years. He's like, what happens if I, I don't sleep? I just put, he said 15 years. And he said, and he's like, wait, why is it that the, you say the more I try, the longer it's going to take? He said, because a man who has one eye on the peak of the mountain can only, can, will scale the um, mountain slower than a man who has his eyes on the road ahead. And that's exactly what you're saying. It's just like you gotta just it, you gotta focus on that process. And that's literally honestly, I'm gonna tell you, you'll get the prize if you just focus on the prize. You'll get the prize and be like, really this this yeah. is what it this is what it felt like. Uh-huh. You know, like if you're just focused on the process, and the wins come a lot more frequently. Mm-hmm. Like yesterday, I had an amazing set at Kohl's. <laughs> right, it's open mic. I mean, like you know, but it was a good time, man. And it, it wasn't even it, it was a great set, and I let that mean something to me. And one of the things I notice about people who are successful is that they let small things mean something, you know? And I I mean, not successful in like, oh, they have like tons of accomplishments and this, but just are happy with what they are doing. They're like, oh, this little win right here, this means something. They don't always, because I think what we do right now, and we even do it to our friends sometimes, is they'll make an accomplishment, right? And then we'll instantly compare it to the internet. And on the internet, everybody is inadequate. Everyone has a small dick on the internet. Like, you know, like, and it makes you, it minimizes your accomplishment and it makes you feel small. People do that to their friends too. It's like, oh, dude, I did this. And it's like, yeah, I saw like seven, you guy do it seven times better on the internet. And it's like, well, you know? (laughs) That actually uh, relates to something I was thinking about the other day while I was scrolling Facebook. It seems like fun can never be validated now until the day afterwards. Mm. So if you go to Six Flags, if you're at like a party or something, you only view it in hindsight as fun the next day when you post it and if it doesn't hit like a certain amount of likes then you're like oh how come everyone else isn't thinking this was as fun as I thought yeah so then fun becomes like a two-step process instead of just being in the moment like why the need to post pictures or even put put your memory of it up for risk like that yeah I I don't really post that many pictures one because I'm not that photogenic but (laughs) Two, it's because, uh, like, I'll, I'll go to raves and I'll be like, why are you Snapchatting this? Like, they don't care. Like, you always get lost in the moment and we, we're living our lives through this lens of being validated. And it's never enough. Like, you'll never get enough likes to really feel like it. Like, even if you get, like, 300 likes, you'll be like, mm, yeah. 
You know, it feels good for a little bit, and then it's just like, yeah, you know, that's that's about what it's worth. Yeah. And um, it, it's weird. Like I had that same experience, kind of with the my my TED thing was like there was a picture that someone took and they posted it on um on my uh my Facebook. I was like, shit, I wanted to post it like a good quality picture to get premium <laughs> likes, and that way you know, and, and it's like, like what are you talking about, dude? You did it. Like that's it. That's all that matters is that you did it. And that you grew as a person, but I think people are becoming more obsessed with the the story that they're communicating online. I mean, my story. Like, look at my story. Look at my Snap story. This is who I'm portraying myself to be. And I think to an extent we've always done that, but now it's quantifiable. <laughs> yeah, I've totally. Um, I'm pretty much a hypocrite on this actually, because if when I go through my Instagram, the pictures that have the more likes. I have a fonder memory of it because I'm like, Whoa, oh, well, more people have agreed with me on how fun this experience was. So even though I'm saying these things, I'm not immune to the effects that I'm talking about. <laughs> um, hold on one second, guys. Um, this kind of actually relates to what I think the future of social media is going to be. Um, I feel like in 10 years, Hopefully, if virtual reality headsets and all that become as powerful as I think they can be, mm-hmm. what will happen is people will be able to download certain experiences that you have. So, for instance, you'll be, like, you'll be able to be in someone's, like, the groom's POV as he's getting married. So, you can watch, you can, like, look into his bride's eyes in real time. And what will happen is people will be able to, like, upload their experiences to like the cloud or whatever it is and other people will literally be able to experience it with them or download the experience or whatever it is because that I think is what where social media is headed right now we're just watching each other's stories but I think in the future we'll actually be able to live them and I think that's the I think feel like that's what the ultimate goal of social media is is as like an ultimate empathy machine I think I 100% that sounds so dystopic and (laughs) but it does sound like where we're heading right and I I do I do agree with that I think a lot of people though want to experience somebody else's life like there's huge vlog culture and it's only getting bigger right and like I've gotten into people's vlogs I'm like no I'm just watching this dude like eat shit like you know like sometimes (laughs) the people vlogging aren't even as cool as me right Uh like and and but we want to be someone else, and I think when we take this to the next level, let's let's take it beyond the cloud, right? Let's take it whenever um, the the singularity, when they say we download our consciousness into the thing, the the hidden um, what people say is that you can live tons of lives, tons of different lives within within this meta entity, and be anybody but yourself. And I think that's what people are obsessed with is being is being someone who they're not. And I think mm-hmm. capitalism. I I love capitalism, right? I love consumerism. It's given us clean water, Netflix, the ability to podcast, all this because people buy shit they don't need. But what one of the unintended consequences of advertising or intended is they make you forever feel incomplete. Mm-hmm. Forever, I am hyper aware of how I'm not enough, how I'm not tall enough, how I'm uh, I don't have blue eyes, I, I, I'm not white, like <laughs> you know. And even if you're white, I'm not this kind of white. I'm not tan. I'm not this. And it's it's not just what it, there's ads out there. No matter who you are, to make you feel insignificant. Mm-hmm. And it's up to us to kind of be aware that these narratives actually don't really exist. Like you don't really have to 
no one's actually consciously valuing you against another person unless you're applying for a job that's something different mm-hmm. but like let's say you're going for a girl right let's say we're both going for the same girl they're not going to be like mm, gooby's like this will's like that no the girl's just gonna generally get a feel for somebody and then she'll go for that person it's mm-hmm. not it's not a mathematical kind of equation but we try to make it out to be an equation in our mind we try to make our lives out to be an equation and i think that's a very problematic way of looking at things yeah, that's actually the reason why I always tried to stay away from Sims. It's because I knew if I played The Sims and I'm, I was really good at it, I'd always be jealous of my Sims character for having a better life than me. Ah. So I'd be like, why, why am I helping this virtual, like, virtual entity of me live a better life than me in actual life? Then that's just gonna make me get pissed. Exactly. Well, <laughs> that happened with me in World of Warcraft, and I, I was, um, I'm never gonna be as cool as I was in World of Warcraft or Star Wars Galaxies. I had my own. In Star Wars Galaxy, I had my own house. I had uh, I was I had my own pilot's license. I was flying through space. I was married. Uh, I had been a swordsman. I had gone to caves and Tatooine. I had mined asteroids. I had met Jedi and fought Sith. Like that is a how dude. Like I'm gonna tell you right now. There was a point where I was like I would I would trade my life on this planet for that life. And I like Star Wars universe is amazing. It's limitless possibility. Um. Yeah, same with World of Warcraft. I was way better. And this is because I was in high school. And I could have been cultivating skills. The thing is, it's way harder to get better at things in real life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's way harder than moving just your fingers a couple of things right here. And um, there's, I just read this book on the shortness of life. Uh, my friend Brendan Lemon recommended it to me. His YouTube channel is The Madness Continues. Uh, always plug in my <laughs> friends, man. You got to hey, you gotta have your friends shine if you're trying to shine, man. <laughs> but he gave me the book. And um, it's by Seneca, a Roman statesman, um, Nero's... Uh, Nero's tutor, who Nero actually sentenced to kill himself just to watch him die. Uh, fun story. But he writes that um, it's not that life is so short, it's that we waste so much of it. And I thought it was so profound. I mean, this book written over 2,000 years ago, how much does it apply to our lives now? It's like, oh my God, life goes by so fast. And it's like, really? I mean, you can live forever if you're living life correctly. I mean, if you're out there working out, pursuing your dreams, doing hard hours, living with friends, like that's a very complete existence. Mm-hmm. But most people, they, they dedicate their lives to wanton activities that don't engage the brain and then are mad because their identity isn't something that they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had, growing up, I really identified with my first love, which is basketball. Mm. So, which is the reason why... I heard you're cold as fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> try to be, try yeah. to be. Yeah, so that's why once I realized I wasn't going to play college ball, I went in hard on 2K. I made my player super good, average triple-double, all that. And now that I don't play video games anymore, I still kind of harpen my love back to basketball by like watching like a bunch of highlights. And my uh, Clay, my friend, my roommate actually, he was like... Isn't it kind of sad that you watch so many highlights because it's like you're not really connected to the game, but you are? And I was like, it is sad, but it's all that I can do to still try to feel like I'm still connected to my first love. Mm. You know, I do the same thing. I loved basketball so much. I thought I was going to play in the NBA. One of my earlier jokes is that my dad told me, and this is a true story, that there are genetic limitations keeping me from playing in the NBA. And I think a lot of people's... Uh, parents aren't real with them about that and they end up sinking all this time but i wanted to play in the nba and my dad said something very profound he was like it's not that you want to be a basketball player it's that you want to be important and and like it 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 didn't make sense to me then but it hit now is that that what what that pursuit was and there's a love for the game and i definitely love the game and he also said i don't doubt that you'll be very good but i think it's very hard to conceptualize from afar how much better they are 
Yeah, because they're playing against each other. So you don't you don't see them in relation to how they play against you. You see them playing against these titans, and you don't understand that they're like six foot five. They're one. They're literally one in one hundred thousand individuals, and um, and that it wasn't available to me. And I I now only I don't even check highlights. I just check box scores, read up mm-hmm. some stuff every now and then. Because watching a game is also a, a massive time commitment. You know, it's like, how the fuck am I going to sit here and watch the whole game, <laughs> yeah. you know? And they're actually saying that there's actually real problems in all sports um, that um, fewer people are tuning in to watch the whole game. Yeah, I totally get that. That's probably like, I mean, I feel like Vine overall has dramatically increased people's attention, de- decreased people's, people's attention spans. So that's why um, I've heard complaints about the MLB that they're losing viewership because MLB is a very slow-paced game. But I think the more the more higher octane games like basketball and I think even soccer on the uprise right now. Well, it's, I think one of the things is soccer is is, is built into a large part into like the culture, right? And it's and it's spread and it's cheap. I think soccer has way lower spectator value than basketball, just just per play. And hey, feel free to disagree with me in the comments and post your opinion. But this is why, in the terms of basketball, so much is happening every play. Mm-hmm. There is the pass, the dunk, three pointers, block shot, rebound, assist. There's so much to keep track with soccer. Like I mean, they're playing. It's all foreplay. And I mean, like when did they score? <laughs> it's like it's off, man. I right, I right. give you that, but it's. Basketball, there's just so, and the last three minutes of a basketball game, holy shit! It's like, oh my god, they jumped down another shot. Oh my god, that pass. Oh, you know, there's so much there, and I think it's a very American sport in that in that there's so much to keep track of. Trevor Noah has this amazing bit about Americans being obsessed with analytics, mm-hmm. and because he said you don't have the same thing in soccer and or or British sports or anything like that, but in here it's like this is the first time that a black guy has dunked over a half black half Asian guy <laughs> in this position, mm-hmm. you know, and. I think it comes from the American need to constantly prove our value. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we're constantly selling ourselves in America. The stereotype of Americans is that we're always bragging. Yeah, I feel like um, I learned this word in a ethics in the good life class my junior year of college. And it was like Ubuntu. It's an African term. and For the team? Yeah, yeah. It's very, like, in America's a highly individualized country. I even read this quote. It said, um, middle class ecstasy is individualism and because there is America has like a crazy middle class that's why there is this big like marketing yourself idea and this whole like it's not a coincidence I read this actually read this in Chuck Cluster I forget which book it was but he said it's not a coincidence that in a country that puts celebrity on such a pedestal that the United States leads the country in serial killers because those ser- serial killers are doing it for to achieve a certain amount of celebrity and notoriety, even if it is for doing terrible, terrible things. Mm. That need drives something as vicious as killing. That is dope. <laughs> I would not have made that connection. That is a really, uh, that would be an ex- exploration of premise on stage. Too bad it was already done in the book. God damn. <laughs> no, I definitely feel, I mean, like, I'm, I've told people this, um, I would rather, like, when people ask me, Will, are you going to get in a relationship anytime soon? I'm like, I'm not going to get in a relationship until I'm already famous. And I'm like, because it comes down to it with, with, for me, is if it's between true love or being famous. And I'm sorry to say, I want celebrity. And it's not even for, like, the, like, Donald Trump is president because he was a celebrity. Like, like, 
Chance the Rapper brought 40,000 people to vote in Chicago because he's a celebrity. Like, there's, I feel like celebrity is wasted on celebrities. Like, you know, like, I, I, it is. Celebrities wasted on celebrities. Do you know what Kanye West could do with the mass? Kanye and Jay-Z, Beyonce, Beyonce filled out Soldier Field six nights in a row. That's something the Bears can't do. All right? Like, that is being literally a goddess. All right? And you're going to tell me you're not going to tell your political... You're not, not going to make strong... I mean, Jay-Z did hell like, political conferences or whatever. You're not going to talk about bigger issues. You're not going to try to spread ideas and try to change the mentality of individuals. Like, celebrity is where you can really have people buy into what you say. If, like, if, like, if, if Miley Cyrus was like, yo, I just read Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle. This shit was bitching. What? Dude, you know how many pre-tweens are going to be out there reading yeah, Nicomachean Ethics? Like, that is the thing, dude, is once, once you are cool, people buy in. And that's what I want, man. I want to have my cult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You really nailed it on the head in terms of what celebrities can do with their following. Yeah. What I do wish is that more of them did advocate for, like, more content like that instead of like promoting some like bs product that they don't even like use no until they take a picture with it yeah like that is insane to me and then i was also arguing with my friend on twitter about how i think obviously like a ce- celebrity in good merit would use their platform to do like really amazing things for their society right but Oftentimes, we think just because you have the resources, then it's almost like you owe it to people to give back. Whereas, like, some people, like Michael Jordan, he just wanted to play ball. You know, he wasn't really concerned about, like, social change up until recently. But during his playing career, he, like, pretty much poo-pooed all those questions. Yeah. And people were giving him flack for it. But it's like, just because you have the resources for something doesn't mean that you have to do X, Y, Z. No. The, the thing is, is you've made that money, you can do it, that's part of your prerogative. I'm just saying I'll, I'll, I reserve the right to judge you in that context for pissing away an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, like with, with Michael Jordan, um, it, it makes me sad because like, I loved Michael Jordan. I, you, I probably, you probably had the same experience. Like, I, I don't think there's many kids who liked basketball or loved basketball that don't have a strong connection to Michael Jordan and the way he played and what he represents. But whenever I found, I don't know if you've heard the Chameleonaire video about like whenever he bought his jerseys. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. And apparently, like Michael Jordan doesn't take pictures with black people. Like, yeah, wow. yeah, and like he doesn't tip and all these other things. And to me, it just hurt because you know you deify these people, and they don't need to be deified. But look, get this about Michael Jordan, right? For Michael Jordan, every person, every new person that meets Michael Jordan, the biggest event of that day is that they met Michael Jordan. Their lives, potentially, is that they met him. He is the biggest event in most people's lives. Do you know how much that distorts your view of reality? Mm-hmm. Like, people like, oh my God, no one should love you before they meet you. That's it. I think um, really attractive girls sometimes fall into this. Really attractive men fall into this. I've had really gorgeous... And I think part of the reason why celebrities, a lot of... The, we talked largely about singers, is because singers don't a lot of time don't really need to think deeply. They're just concentrated on the grind, concentrated on singing. They don't need to like really interact with the world in that way. And whenever they get celebrities, you're kind of like, once you become famous and undeniably successful, you become immortalized in that time in your life. That's it, That's it. you're probably not gonna grow up beyond that. Mm-hmm. And that's why you have like, I feel bad for Justin Bieber, he's kind of this perpetual stage of being a high schooler. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. 
I think the reason a lot of celebrities kind of fall into that trap is it's pretty much not their fault just because it's how they're it's how they're cornered, cornered in interacting with the world because once you have that platform suddenly all your conversations with friends like even family from back home turn into business opportunities turn into like uh mm. you know oh you should invest in this you should um help me promote x like whatever your product is and what ha- what happens is it's very hard for those genuine conversations to come by just because everyone is viewing them as an stepping stone or an outlet for something else as opposed to treating them like a real individual with real thoughts and like concerns like just because someone's successful doesn't mean they don't also have the burden of overthinking overanalyzing feeling insecure yeah if anything more so I, mm. I posted a YouTube video recently and um, this guy wrote on there uh, you ugly fuck <laughs> and I can't imagine seeing that but hundreds of thousands of posts New York Times posts I can't imagine having articles written about me in a negative capacity uh, like and the TED talk I did is labeled someone's going to laugh when you die and it's basically if you're truly as successful as you want you're just increasing the size of the target on the your back and it becomes more of a mathematical certainty that someone will laugh when you die mm-hmm. and the thing is is that like I want part of what I was trying to promote is that we shouldn't live for our legacy mm-hmm. we shouldn't live for the perception of others we should just like live kind of what we do and assume that everyone talks shit about us and like that might be everyone's like no you shouldn't assume that everyone talks bad about you that's a that sounds like low self-esteem it's like no people talk shit my mom loves me talk shit all right like she lo- there's no one who loves me more than her we don't talk shit because we don't like someone we talk shit because we are bored and it's nothing against even the people we're talking shit it's just the, the way we're engaging right do i have anything criminally in- against the kardashians probably not if i hung out with kendall would we make love and have <laughs> beautiful kids and would i be welcomed maybe you know but like the thing is is not to take it personally because you aren't even the things that they're saying about you aren't even you Right, because you don't even exist. Mm-hmm. Your identity is made up, and who they're perceiving of you is just a caricature of experiences that they've been let in on. And so, don't get offended whenever it's kind of a misrepresentation, or get offended because it's actually you and change your shitty behavior. <laughs> All right, <laughs> like that. Yeah, like regardless of how quality or poor your character is, I think the most efficient way to go throughout your life is to just anticipate that people will talk about you in a negative light. Yeah. Because what, regardless of how shit you how hot shit you think you are, someone's always going to like disagree with you. If if you're more on like the shy side, people will call you, you know, he's like too quiet. Or if you if you talk a lot, but oh, he's too loud. Just always anticipate that people aren't going to like how you are so that way when it does come or if you hear about it coming then you're like oh i've mentally prepared myself for exactly this. It, there, there's no shock value there's no like oh i didn't expect that from no, them you no. should always expect it because no one every person in your life you've had a disagreement with yeah if it, just because it didn't end up in a big fight doesn't mean it wasn't a disagreement that led to later microaggressions in your friendship or whatever yeah it is. exactly i and I also think you should just take time to make fun of yourself. Uh, <laughs> just look in the mirror and be like, you dude, you, you, you old big nose, glasses wearing, like yeah. small forearm having, big lip. <laughs> this is good. Just go deep, man. Uh, actually, I, was, I had this date with this girl yesterday, and I was talking about one of my best friends who kind of a white supremacist. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and she's like, how could you be friends with a dude who is a white supremacist? 
And I'm like, well, you know, because he saved my life a couple times. Like, he's fixed my car. I love that guy. We've spent a lot of time <laughs> together. We've almost died. And she's like, yeah, but he thinks he's better than you. And I'm like, yeah, but I think I'm better than him. <laughs> like, you know, like, just because, like, and then I thought about it from this context is, like, just because I, if I have friends who are Christian and Muslim, right, a lot of them, I think, assume that I'm going to hell. Am I... Am I mad? Am I not going to be their friends because they think I'm going to go to hell? No. I'm not going to get mad at someone because they believe something. We can still have so much commonality, right? Like, And I'm going to tell you this. My friend that uh, is a white supremacist has way more black friends than a lot of Chicago liberals. So, <laughs> so, so you know, to me, it matters the action. Do I, would I prefer if he wouldn't say like things like that? Probably. But do, do I really care? No. Because people's beliefs aren't even who they are. They're an illusion. Like, dude, that, that's... The, when you get into the... I had this crazy thought, guys. You guys already have your mind <laughs> melted. All right? So I was, like, thinking about truth and whether or not there's objective truth, right? And then I came to the realization that I'm thinking about this in a made-up language. English. None of this is actually real. So every thought I've had is a lie because it's not even a real thought because it's made up. Even though there's symbolic meanings of things, they don't mean anything in and of themselves. So my entire internal experience, there is no objective truth. Everything I know is, is skewed by the language that I'm interpreting it with and the ideas that I'm using to represent it. It's just as if, if, I'm, read, if I'm looking at a, at a, a, a weird uh, ink blot and trying to make it out with these other ink blots and then saying are either of these ink blots true when really i can't ever know truth because blah i don't know right like it's just and, and that's why like whenever i talk about like religion and stuff i think it's so hard to pinpoint what god is right or what you're really trying to say it's because like dude like language how are you going to describe the entire universe in language like that's what mm -hmm. it, it, the words are limited you know yeah you always have to be concerned about scope whenever you mm. are using language just because like I've been like writing papers and stuff like that where like there'll be a word I'll look up a synonym of that word and there's like two other words but neither of them fit mm -hmm. and I'm sure in another language there is a better word for that but because English because there's only so many words that then our thoughts are in a bubble because yep. we can only think about our thoughts in words yep and that's kind of <laughs> one of my uh, friends on Instagram actually had this post where she said uh, language is like the key to misunderstanding and I was like that's true but would you rather have people just bark all the time exactly <laughs> like it's the only outlet we have so we just have to use it to the best of our abilities <laughs> and, and also I think so one of my favorite podcasters his name is Sam Harris his podcast is called waking up and he's done a lot of TED talks uh, and one of the things I've noticed about Sam is that he speaks very precisely. And one of the things I notice about people who are very smart, and this is what my dad told me, he, he got me this book, 30 Days to a More Powerful Vocabulary, when I was uh, um, in high school. And I didn't end up reading or using it until I was in college and trying to become more impressive. But he told me that the, using big words isn't to, and improving your diction isn't, isn't to impress other people. It's that you are able to think in a more clear capacity and you're able to think more precisely. And it made me think about this, is that when we have, when a doctor, when someone's studying to be a doctor, when they're in med school, they spend tons of time, a, a disgusting amount of time learning anatomy and 
just basic definitions. And this is because you cannot perceive a problem if you don't know the word for it. Mm. And so I think a lot of times when people talk about misunderstanding, it's that they're actually poorly representing their ideas. Mm. And that is the issue, is that they cannot speak with precision partially because of what other people, sometimes you have the right words for it, but you're weighing other people's intention on that. So it's like, oh, I want to speak. We've talked about it with uh, like friends. If you want to be very like honest with them, you have to take into consider, hmm, but what will be the effect of that, right? Mm-hmm. And then that fil- that's a filter of your language and everything mm-hmm. like that. And then pretty soon you're, you're expressing a very muted version of what you actually want to say. Mm-hmm. Because there's cost to things that you say. There's, co- there's a cost to being precise. And you, I think you need to know whether or not you want to pay that cost. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's it. Yeah, totally. Depending on the strength of your friendship, you you always have to consider the goal of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So if you're really close with that person, then you're very lucky because you could probably be as real with them as you want to without you worrying about it hurting or even destroying the relationship itself. But if it's someone you just started dating or just like a close friend or maybe like a an acquaintance, then you just can't put yourself in a, that compromising of a position because if you do try to be real with them, they'll be like, oh, well, who are you? And then you'll just be, well, I'm trying to help you out in the best way. If you think that, if me, give, if me feeding you the truth is gonna cause you to resent me, then I don't know if this friendship will work. But how many times in our lives do we actually think about going down that road? For me, rarely. Rarely. <laughs> I, I do it purely because I, don't think when I'm talking. So I, I operate on this. A lot of people like, I'm very socially confident. And I say that in a kind of a, it sounds braggadelic, but braggadelic. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a word, but that sounds dope. Um, but I am socially very confident. And it's because I'm actually able to put out the thoughts of how I'm being perceived in the moment. And then I think about, so I think about how I was acting after the fact. If like, let's say we had a conversation and I was like very honest and I had said exactly what I felt and I might've rubbed you the wrong way. I won't think about it right then. I'll think about it after the fact and been like, you know what? That probably was not suited for the time. Let me try to repair this. But the thing is the more self-aware you are, the less you're in the moment and the less confident you can come across. And to me also, like largely, it's a lot of times our, people are kind of relieved whenever you can just be real with them. Like there are people who can't take it. And I'm like, I don't wanna hang out with them anyway. <laughs> like, like I, I really don't, I don't wanna spend a lot of time like uh, testing the water, this, that. Um, but that's not always been the case. So, and I also rub a lot of people the wrong. There's a lot of people in the Chicago comedy scene that don't like me. You know, because of this exact thing. And it's fine. It's a consequence of being yourself. Being yourself has cost. The thing is, people don't know the cost. And I like how you said this before. You said you you go into conversations with a goal. I think that's very smart. Because um, when you have a goal in mind, you can pick the game you want to play. And I think, uh, I we've talked about this before. It's like, I look at social conversations like games. And right now, we're playing the relating podcasting game. So that means our conversation is high fidelity right now. We're dropping knowledge bombs left and right. I mean, this is very strong structured and formal. We turn off this, it'll probably go to like, oh, relating, how's life kind of game. Mm-hmm. And then maybe if we're out playing basketball, it's like, we're trying to win this game game. Get, we'll get the <laughs> fucking boards. And like, it, it, because we're playing the different games, it could be the same words, mm-hmm. but they're used in a different way. And the problem happens when people don't get the game you're playing. And that's the issue because that's where the misunderstanding comes. It's like, it's like oh, you're trying to use Monopoly pieces and we're playing Risk. Right. And, yeah. and, and I think... If you are always conscious of the game you're playing or the game that someone else is playing, you can you can basically maneuver conversations in a way in which you have a better benefit. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's why a lot of times I think about friendship, like trying to jump in the swimming pool. Is real friends, you don't have to worry so much about dipping your toe in the water. You just kind of dive right in, just because real friends are able to like <clears throat> communicate really effectively with one another. And if you're constantly around eggshells mid conversation, then suddenly you're not expressing yourself in an authentic way because your language is going through, like Bill said, all these different filters. And yeah, it's, it's nuts, man. <laughs> I like how you said eggshells too, because it's like being like, you, we're both friends with Clay, and Clay will be on the podcast. He's an interesting guy. But being around Clay, is a, he's an elephant. And uh, and if you're an egg, you're going to get smashed, right? Like, you you got to basically come with that, like, thick skin mentality. And that's what I like about hanging out with comics is they'll – part of the reason why a lot of people can't be comics is comics aren't nice to you. We bond with you by being mean. Mm-hmm. And I think when you are around, a lot of people can take it. I think the reason why you won't find truth in college is because of political correctness. And I, I just think the truth is not politically correct. I think the truth – or the the closer you get to the truth, the more crude it sounds. Like I may, so I have a, a presentation in one of my classes where I was talking about that closing sweatshops might be the worst thing to happen to a lot of these places, right? And that uh, even though I think media campaigns against uh, corporations is the best way to basically change behaviors, we must make sure we don't do it too reactionarily. That way, they don't end up just closing factories and unemploying thousands of people and the response i got from my class was kind of like visceral disgust right mm-hmm. they're like will wait are you advocating like sweatshops i'm like well we had sweatshops in america like, like part of the reason we have all this dope stuff is because tons of people lost fingers children <laughs> testicles to bring to basically stimulate our economy to get to this point that that's the thing is like louis ck has a bit about every great thing in the world has a bag of suffering behind it and that, and a, a lot of people were put off by that, but my professor said something very interesting. He said, my paper, if I focus on this, might be very interesting because so few people are willing to take a position on this because it's so bad sounding. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the issue. Is we, If we have academics scared of exploring topics because they're afraid of being shamed for pursuing truth, then we're gonna just we're gonna get like filtered versions of the truth. And when you get filtered truth, that's kind of a fucking lie. Mm-hmm. And when you base reality on a lie, there's a lot of other bad things that happen. It's like setting up the rules to a game and then like it just doesn't work. It's like building a building and the blueprints are off. Eventually it falls in. And I think that has to do with a lot of our cultural narratives about friendship and romance. Mm-hmm. There's uh, this great podcast to listen to called Script Notes Podcast for all you uh, budding screenwriters out there. And they do this episode where they talk about how movies have this crazy effect on how people live their lives. Because they view real careers, but TV, uh, that version on TV. So there have been people who have watched the episode of Law & Order and been like, wow, I want to be in that courtroom, like go through the system and then they get there and like, wow, this isn't like the TV show at all. Or like they'll watch CSI and be like, wow, I want to be in forensics. And all these real life expectations are being based off fiction. And I was actually thinking about how reality TV and probably TV in general has dramatically changed people's personalities because they think, oh, well, in order to be uh, funny or in order to be engaging i have to act like the people who are those things on tv which people 
on reality TV especially are just caricatures mm -hmm. and how and how is that idea being perpetuated through how people live then suddenly they'll go a little bit too far or not be true to who they are because they feel the need to like put on this act for the sake of entertainment yeah you know and so it's like are you being yourself or are you being are you trying to emulate a personality you've seen on TV because those are two very different things very different things even it, it's so we have a problem with that in the law where jurors think that you need tons of forensic evidence mm -hmm. to basically say someone's guilty and they're like oh yeah man like you need dna there needs to be cum <laughs> there needs to be pubes there needs to be uh, ass hair like yeah. skin cells you know like everything because they watch so much csi las vegas um one of the crazy things about all of this is like we base our expectations for love on this and it like i have a bit that i'm working on where it's like you know like we think that god has made somebody for us and i'm going to tell you right there if you're a guy it now more than ever if you're a guy it is very easy to die alone <laughs> easier than it's ever been for you to die without a spouse why because of pornography you can just stay home and jerk off and not feel the need because there's smaller social communities and because girls are hyper aware of how valuable they are with a flip of the app they can get thousands of matches girls are suited for for every one match you get there's probably a girl that you want having 50 to 100 matches. Mm -hmm. So the dating economy, much like everything else, has gone non-local, mm -hmm. right? With almost everything you're seeing that, like, basically a lot of people are prospering at the top and everyone else is faltering. So, guys, if you're not getting out there and talking to girls, you there, there is no girl coming out the corner waiting for you. <laughs> she, she doesn't give a shit. She's on, she has 12 dates this week. <laughs> She's battering away guys who have been trying to have sex with her for years. You need to get out there and get on it. Like, and that is a destructive narrative that, oh, all you have to do is wait for your time also as joe rogan says your life is the montage you can't fast forward <laughs> that that is you're you are the montage right now you need to figure out how what would that dope montage look like and just carry out those actions mm -hmm. another thing about love and expectations and reality is movies conveniently rom-coms and right when they get married why because <laughs> it that's love isn't pretty like not i'm gonna not say love isn't pretty i'm gonna say commitment isn't pretty because when you commit to something, like I did 367 consecutive days of stand-up. I can't, uh, like that was one of the most grueling, most testing things of my life. I'd spent, I've never felt more lonely, but I felt good about it in the end. But it was only 367 days. If someone had told me I had to be that, but married to someone and be everything, like you said, not just one thing. I'm not just supposed to be good sex to you and okay conversation. I'm supposed to be a provider. <laughs> I'm supposed to be, yeah. I'm supposed to listen to all your thoughts. I'm supposed to be someone your family loves. I'm supposed to get all your worries and not to complain about mine. What? For my life? <laughs> I'm surprised more people didn't blow their brains out. I'm dead serious because it's like it's like that's suffocating. And then you add the thing of not only being a lover, but then I have to be a parent to you every like the other our kids. And then I have to be a parent all the time. I just can't shut that off. Then I have to be a good worker for my boss who wants to fire me and outsource my job to India. Like what, what am I gonna do? You know, that's why we have all these constraints. And I mean, this is the thing is we're not going to get out of it, but you need to be aware that you're playing those roles to people. And you got to be aware that this is what you're going to offer them. I'm not any girl who wants to date me and marry me. I'm going to tell you right now, I will be a great and we will have good sex and uh, we will have uh, fun times, <laughs> but you're not going to be my best friend and I'm not going to be your best friend. We're going to be good friends 
All right, but you have you have your friends for that. I'm not gonna be your entire hope, your pillar, and everything like that. I'm barely anything for myself, and th- th- disengage from that narrative, okay? And 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 I will disengage from mine, and hopefully we can stay married for six years and have a great divorce. You know, like that. That's it. That's all you can hope yeah. for. This is why I cannot stress enough the importance of. Whoever you're interested in right now, think about the community that they have. Mm. Just because you never want to burden yourself with someone who doesn't have a supportive community behind them. Because then those ex- expectations are going to fall on you. And that that's not to say that you can't enter a relationship with that person. But whoever you're in... A, Whoever you get yourself involved with, you want to make sure that they have their friends that they can go to and make sure that they have a support system behind them. So that way, the, resp- the responsibility, so to speak, is split. Mm. Because whenever you expect one person, you, you, you never want to feel like a burden. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you kind of rely on one person for all these different things, like you were mentioning, then that just sets unrealistic expectations that honestly no one can fulfill. No. So... I we were talking earlier about how love isn't like this one-to-one transaction. It's more like building a soup, right? Some people bring the potatoes. Some mm-hmm. people bring the broth. It's love is very community-based, and you can only have it if all those other needs, quote unquote, have been met mm-hmm. first. I, I definitely I like the soup analogy, you know. And sometimes in different parts of your life, you want different types of soup. Right, like there, you want different types of soup. Like there, there's somebody who made excellent broth, and you're like, you know what, this broth has been great, but I just want some big meat in my in my soup. <laughs> but and it comes with the expectation, and I think one of the things though is also how we edit it. I remember when I was in London, um, my last week there. This was a very like sad moment for me. Uh, my friend Juvian was coming to backpack with me across Europe, but I was sad because it was coming to an end, and I made wonderful friends. And I, I was, I was painfully aware that um, I was painfully aware that I this this time in my life was going to end. I was going to be moving to Chicago um, and all these other things. And I went and watched Spider Man by myself, and <laughs> and I burst into tears uh, listening to uh, uh, Gwen Stacy's speech about. Um, the beauty of something, what makes something valuable is that it ends. Mm-hmm. And later on, whenever I was studying for a final and procrastinating, I wrote a poem about it where I was talking about like, our reality is an experience, like we can't hold on to moments, they're like happening and shattering, happening and shattering. And like, the thing is, is as we're streaming through, we can't even catch the mood of what we're feeling until after it goes away. You, you don't even sometimes know that you were very sad at a point in life until you get distance from it. And your mind has to basically edit the experience Mm -hmm. It has to draw together, it attaches a cinematic song to it, and you look back at it as a completed package, you're like, I was sad, or I was very happy at that time. But it's so hard to tell what something is while you're doing it. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, is that what the experience of making a movie feels like, or doing, like, do you not know what it's going to be like until it's finished? Yeah, that's kind of like what's very nice but also terrifying about making any work of art is once pen hits paper fingers hit keyboard you don't quite know where it's going but once the best part about doing any art is right in the middle so in the script would be the second act because once you finish the first draft albeit there will be many more drafts subsequent drafts to edit you just know wow i've completed this in totality for more or less the final draft will be pretty similar to this and you're just like, wow, I'm, I remember all my hopes, page one, and now that I'm done, did I really hit all the marks I was trying to do and everything? 
So that's why there's definitely like a post-mortem feeling, I guess. Mm. Once you finish any work of ours, you were living with it, with it for so long. And once it ends, you pretty much have to make... It's up to you to start on a new thing. And then you're like, well, am I just like neglecting this or is it time to move on? So that's why I think like making art is very... It's like a microcosm of how you live your life because it's very much you live out your life in themes for the most part. I think that's why when you're younger, it's easy to like hook up and like uh, kind of like get around and all that. Just because when you're young, there's so much, your future is up in the air, there's so much ambiguity. But as you get older, like have a stable job, stable home, then it's time to settle down because at that point, your new theme of life is stability. Whereas mm. like when you're younger, it's more nebulous, you know? So that's why I think people, that's why I believe people uh, live their lives in themes. And so once it becomes, less nebulous and more stable then it's like okay family time mm. kids time you know suburbs time but or, or however you view what stability means to you for, for a lot of people those three things it's not that for some people stability is traveling the world even yeah. if it sounds unstable that's what that's how they define it exactly it's it's to their value set mm -hmm. and um, there was just so much I loved about what you said. I've written screenplays and I've worked, written novels. There, there are times I, I have a great story to tell that um, it's called Benevolent Despotism. And I was met with the reality that I am not a good enough writer to make this piece come alive. Mm -hmm. And when, when you feel that, it, it's, it's so sad, because like, it's, like, it's like in the ether, right? This massive story, and you see it, like, you see it so vividly, and, and then it tries to come out of your body and into the keyboard, and it's just like, I, I can't do this. Like, this isn't, I can't represent the ideas that I'm seeing in my mind with the skills that I have. And I think that's with, with so many great pieces of art, but the thing is that's sad is if you're waiting, you can't become the guy who can write that, until you failed writing it a bunch mm. of times and that, that i think it's i i agree with you that you come in with i i was working on this um, novel called thelonious sin and i was gonna get a serialized published through one of my friends who runs a a, a serialized publishing platform called tabulate his name's alex park our episode's called meta awareness it was a really great episode he's a very smart guy and um when i was writing it it was about an investment banker who moonlights as an escort and the idea sounds very captivating. Like, you're like, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just couldn't make it not sound hacky. Cause like, like the thing is you have to do it delicately, especially an idea, like the greater the idea, the more with care and nuance you have to deliver it or just people are like, nah. like mm -hmm. what is this? And, um, and then it became like just larger in life. And as I was writing, cause it was a serialized novel, I'd be sending him chapters at a time. But the problem is, is that, you know, he went to Oxford, he, for writing, one of, one of his masters is in writing, and so I, he would critique them very heavily, and I was very thankful for it, but like then I couldn't write without his critique in mind. And the thing is, you need to separate yourself from the critic. You need to, you need to just write for, like, um, uh, what's his name, the guy who writes all the uh, creepy books? Stephen uh, King. Stephen King, uh, have you read On Writing? So his, his book on writing, he's, he says, don't write and edit. Write, then edit. They need to be two distinct phases because if you write while editing, you lose the love for the piece. And it's, like, it's, it's also kind of like in a relationship, if you continuously try to edit somebody or edit who somebody is, you kind of lose the love for them, mm -hmm. you know? And it, it kind of comes this less appreciation and more of you could be better, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's because what, from afar when we first meet somebody, like that painting right there, it's a cool painting, right? Mm -hmm. It's finished because we accept that it's finished. And like a lot of times when we meet someone, when we hook up with someone, when we're in, we're like, oh, this is a finished product. This is who this person is. But then when we get close to them, we're like, ah, oh, they're not finished yet. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, hey, since you're not finished, why don't you change this right here? And why don't you change this right here? And then all of a sudden you're like, 
there's art you're you just become a co-creator in this person's <laughs> piece whether or not they wanted it to and partially it's because you want them to play a certain role in your life mm-hmm. yeah there's definitely i've even had this with conversations where when i meet someone i'll like kind of because conversations are a lot like uh, playing catch um if if i throw you the ball so in like a conversation i'd say something in my head i'm like What's the what's their ideal response? Mm. And a lot of times, if they don't say it back to me, then like suddenly I've lost some like mental momentum for the conversation because mm. I'm like, dang, they didn't like I wanted a fastball, but they threw me a curveball. Mm. So it's like I'm constantly like idealizing their responses and like where the conversation is going, and it's very unfair for me to do that, but I can't help it. I don't yeah. know if you experience that. No, I, I, it's so. Being very smart is to the disservice of communication because this is why it's especially with girls like and I tie this back to girls because I think like just like a large of my reality is women and I think like I used to do that all the time like oh I'm gonna say this and she'll say this no I'm gonna say this no and the thing is is that's whenever I'm trying to connect when I'm trying to connect I'm trying to elicit responses but when I'm vibing like right now we're vibing right like and we're like in the moment like it's kind of like I say something you're like oh yeah I might not have expected that but I can build off of it and that's the thing about conversation is building but whenever you're trying to be an architect of the conversation that's when it falls apart because yeah. you're trying to you're it's about how much control you're willing to let go of you know and the thing is I think I look at conversation like you're molding clay and if they throw something in there even if it's off I'm gonna be like trying to like come back in with my own thing but I do understand that like it's like the idealizing of what should be and I think it should is such a loaded word like I think it's such a word that causes so much entropy and sadness I should be doing this I should be doing better and it's like dude really like really should you like like what, how much do you need? Like, what, what do you need? Should you be in a relationship? How happy should you be? Uh, how many ki- you need kids? How many kids should you have? Uh, like, you need a job? How much money should you be making? Uh, you should be traveling? How many places should you go a year? This should. Who are you grading yourself against? What? Where does this should exist? This sh- should is the cause of so much pain. And if you take out should, you can let your life be what it is. And my friend Constantine said this to me. We watched this movie Interstellar. And have you seen Interstellar? Yeah. And um, we were wondering why it wasn't great. We mm-hmm. thought it was a good movie, but it wasn't great. And, he, and he, um, uh, Constantine said this. He said, great art risk being misunderstood. And I think if you can live without judgment you can let your life become great art to the people who would view it as such but you need to not look at it i should be anything and just create it and then judge it and get the mood and the theme later yeah my initial reaction after i watched interstellar i kind of had a similar idea about it i was like because going into it, i was like wow like you know i don't because the trailer was very it was one of those trailers where it teased you the perfect amount you're like i don't yeah. know, quite know where this is going but it seems really ambitious yeah and the visuals were extremely ambitious mm-hmm. but what kind of lacks for me is the there are some movies that really hit you home once the credits roll but for that that kind of transcendent moment where i was like I, I was talking about how watching movies or reading books takes you three places at once you're sitting in the theater, you're in the uh, world of the movie, and, and you're also relating that movie and you're self-reflecting in your head. So you're in mm-hmm. three different places at once. And when I watched that movie, that, like I said, the moment, moment of transcendence never really happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be just because 
of the expectations I had of it. Yeah. And so when that moment never happened, then suddenly I scored the movie lower versus just seeing it purely, no trailer, no nothing. Oh, this is a film. Like, that's why I try my best not to watch trailers mm. before I see something. And that's why I generally don't like hearing my friends describing other friends before I meet them because suddenly I'm anticipating all these things mm. versus taking it in organically. Mm. I, I like that. I think this is the thing is like Christopher Nolan was so heavy. I, I told people this. It was like good sex where I didn't come. It, that that was interstellar because it, it was a good movie and that i did have high expectations for it. you're right there was a lot surrounding it but i felt like what missed out on it he, he was so heavy-handed with the concept of love he, he didn't let me misunderstand that and for that i was just like mm. and you know what i thought was a really amazing movie arrival have you seen arrival i have not I it arrival arrival dude like amazing storytelling awesome cinematography uh, touches on similar concept, but not in a like hacky way, and it just was like a very interesting movie telling a story that hadn't been told before. And um, I thought Arrival was a really great movie. Her was a really great movie. I think dude, the, one of the best movies I've ever seen ranks in my top five. It's Before Sunset. Have you seen that? Yes. They are just talking in Paris, mm -hmm. but one of the things that I think uh, uh, what's his name, Rick, uh, Richard Linklater understands is that we fall in love with characters not stories mm -hmm. and watching them talk in Paris there there's so much relatable there was a fluidity there and it to me I've never felt it the, for those of you who haven't seen it the whole movie is shot in real time <laughs> okay <laughs> real time and it's a conversation and it is spectacular and I think it's because there's so much grace and nuance and I think there's a lot of people who would watch it and probably be like oh, I don't know like it's boring all they did was just talk but to mm. me it stimulated me on all these levels it made me think about love lost it made me think about connection it made me think about dreams that never made them out to be and the entire movie is built up on expectation and doesn't even show it it doesn't even show what you're expecting to see mm. and it just lets your brain do a lot of the work and I think that's what um, a lot, a big theme in postmodernism is the thought is more powerful than the expression, and that's why a lot of postmodern art sucks dick. <laughs> like you know, but, like, but like it's just like the thought is more powerful than the expression. So whenever you see something and you're thinking, hmm, how does this work? That is actually the experience you're supposed to want from art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, movies that try to beat you over the head to make sure you understand things never work mm -hmm. because I don't think the goal of a movie, or at least I think the goal of sh the goal of good movies shouldn't be to tell you a story from A to Z. It should be providing an interesting scenario that allows you to think about themes that the movie touches on. Exactly. And speaking of Richard Linklater, I don't know if you've seen the movie Waking Life. Oh my god! <laughs> One of my favorites. Yeah, so uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's like this um, guy who kind of like bounces, it's like this nebulous uh, guy who like bounces around talking to different people and like there's not quite like a clear narrative mm. but uh i actually had this realization the other day when i woke up i was like is waking life actually how we're supposed to be living like just because when you like are we confusing consequ like consequentialism with how life should be so like just because you sleep in your own bed and wake up the next day in your own bed just because there's consequence there does that mean that that's how like true life is or is true life actually experienced as something like that, where you're just like a spear, like bouncing from like different situation to situation? Like, are we confusing uh, like logical sequences of events 
so maybe in waking life, maybe that's how other life forms, that's how they live their life. And like, because we're trapped in this body, and that's how, that's, that's like the only realm we know is go to sleep, wake up, live, go to sleep, wake up, live. I, dude, that, that, <laughs> guys, you're listening to my mind being blown. I, I, had, I had not thought about that, but I think, so this is what it is, is my opinion on it is linear, we, we should promote linear thinking only retrospectively. Like, just like uh, Steve Jobs said in his uh, seminal graduation talk, you can't connect the dots looking forward, you can only connect them looking back. And I think when we look at our lives in the future and moving to the future, it, dude, it's just you're doing a bunch of random stuff and right. stuff tends to work out, but you can't see the narrative going forward. You can only see it going back. Like, I, um, I'm working on this joke, or it's just an idea where it's like somebody telling me, like, you need to know where you're going to be in 10 years. It's like, I don't want to work any job where I'll know exactly where I'll be in 10 years. How scary is that shit? Where I know, dude, you know who knew where they're going to be for 10 years? The janitor who worked at my school. Yeah. You know, like, he knew. He knew that for, like, 30 years, he was gonna be there i don't want that i life is random i might not live i shouldn't know that what i need to know is how can i optimize my next day if i optimize every next day Mm -hmm. or just day period i'll be living a dope life if you i'm gonna tell you if you optimize every day consistently you'll be living a dope life ditch your plans your plans your plans are fragile it's a narrative that doesn't exist linear functions don't don't you can't see going far enough you don't know the variables you don't know the characters who are going to come in just like the character in Waking Life. Mm-hmm. You can only see that looking back, and in there you can create some harder cohesive narrative, edit it, write your diary, whatever. Going forward, focus on being a character. Focus on doing the things that you want to do that will make you better at the skills that are gonna give you more access and more opportunities. One of the things a lot of people don't consider is how much being very good at something can change how quickly something happens in your life. Because when you have a massive plan, you don't really figure out like, Oh, but if I'm really great at this skill, someone might just hit me up and be like, hey, you want to move to Tokyo? Like that, that, that happens to people. So just focus on getting really good at a skill, building a powerful network, and doing things intensely. Mm-hmm. And you'll be fine. Those three things, that's a secret to life. A hundred percent of your intent, but free from outcome. It's a Hindu parable. It's in the Bhagavad Gita where he says, uh, I, I don't know the, the, the players in the thing, but basically he's like, you may be able to give everything to your cause, but not be attached to what happens. You're only guaranteed your labor, not the fruits of your labor. So if you enjoy your labor, you found the secret to life. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. I think the term micromanaging gets a bad rep in general. Because if you, like you said, if you want to be successful, it's a very meticulous process. And there was this great quote I heard that it really takes something, a grand idea, and by breaking into steps, makes it sound way more doable than mm-hmm. a lot of people think. And that uh, idea is, a page a day is a book a year. Mm-hmm. And that's a 365-page book. And so if you apply that to a medium like screenplays, a page a day... It's three screenplays a year. Yeah, well, actually, so it could even be four, so 90 times four. Yeah. You know, so like kind of breaking it down in that way it makes it seem a lot more doable because whenever we think of big tasks it's like you know obviously no one can make the jump from page one to page 90 but if you wait a month 30 30 days that's 30 pages yep. then suddenly things become a lot more doable once you focus like back to earlier we're talking about focus on the road ahead not not eyes on the prize, eyes on the road. Exactly. I love that. That was some real constructive advice. I think this is a dope place to leave off this podcast, guys. Eric, do you want to plug anything again or 
Any- um, yeah, so if you guys uh, look me up on odysseyonline.com slash at Eric Diaz, the next the article link. I put out is uh, called Glimpse of the Future, what social media will look like in 2027. That's where I talk about that app that you'll be able to upload your different experiences and have everyone on your friends just be able to download them and live through them through your eyes. I think that's where social media is headed. That voyeurism unlocked, man. <laughs> well, I'll definitely be reading it. Thank you again for coming out, yeah, man. Sure. Thanks for having me. And guys, as always, like, follow, share, subscribe, check out my YouTube and follow me on Twitter because I need it. My post on Twitter today was um, um, me telling a, uh, I told my friend I'd found the cure. Uh, I found the path to enlightenment and he's like, what? Uh, meditation, and I'm like, nah, suicide. <laughs> so if you want more nihilistic existential comedy, come my way. Godspeed and good night, you guys.